Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia, and I'm also currently a Danish Diabetes and Endocrine Academy Visiting Professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research, so exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise and health. And what I'm really wanting is for you to get your exercise information from the research experts rather than from influencers. And indeed, today I bring to you Professor Michael Kerr from the Department of Clinical Medicine at Bispurpia Hospital in Copenhagen, who's also associated with the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. He has a really stellar and varied background. He's a medical doctor who started off looking at glucose metabolism during exercise, specifically what regulates liver glucose output during exercise. He then moved into muscle and now is a world authority on tendons. So the effect of exercise on tendons, uh, what causes tendon injury, whether you could prevent and treat tendon injuries. So whether it's best to rest the tendon when it's injured or exercise it, and we'll see that it's actually better to exercise it and whether any sort of nutritional or drug treatments can improve tendon injuries. I found it really interesting. I think you will too. So stick around. I would, of course, prefer you to watch the whole chat, and that way you'll get the full context. But if you'd like to jump around a little bit, you can look down the notes, and then you'll see timestamps there. So on YouTube, you can go to the time, which is in blue, click on it, and it will move to that section. And on the other platforms, you can just go down, you can see the times, and you can move to them manually. And if you can do me a favor, if you could like, subscribe, leave comments, etc., That'll help get the message out because when people do searches, the algorithm will tend to suggest inside exercise more if there's more likes, subscribes, comments, etc. Okay, so enjoy the chat. Hi, Michael. How are you? Welcome to Inside Exercise. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So you're, why don't you just explain? So you're a medical doctor who's um, also doing exercise research. So quite often... Um, I'm asking people, you know, were you a sports person first or a researcher first or whatever, but you're actually a medical person. So how did you actually get into this? Were you sort of interested in exercise and sport and, and then thought, I want to be a sports medicine doctor or did you do medicine or how did you end up doing what you did? I, I knew very early that I was very interested in exercise. So I've been doing exercise my whole childhood and adolescent period. And when I had to decide whether what to study, I was actually dividing between studying exercise science or medicine. And I chose medicine simply because I thought maybe there are some more options and I could I could still use the interest of exercise. But but I knew from the first day of medical school that wherever I would end up, then it would be mm -hmm. something with exercise. And that was really what made me thrill. If I had been become a psychiatrist, I'd probably have done training in psychiatric patients. So at that time, I, it was the exercise definitely first. And then uh, the choice of, of occupation came uh, came after that. And as, as you probably know, I ended up then specializing in rheumatology because that was sort of close to sports medicine. And we don't have sort of a, a, a big medical specialty called sports medicine uh, in in Denmark, despite the fact that I'm professor of sports medicine, but but that was the entrance of it, yeah. But do you still not have a? Because in Australia we have sports medicine specialty. Is there still no sports medicine specialty in Denmark? No, no, there's not. I mean, basically in Denmark, so that rheumatology covers also physical rehabilitation, and therefore they sort of feel that sports medicine is is on the non-surgical field. That's the area, and then of course if you're a surgeon, you're an orthopedic. Uh, a surgeon and uh, so so that's okay. the way it is and 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 
So, so it also that's also why it started with uh, during medical school that I was very interested in in beginning to go into to some kind of research, um, and um, and there because I was uh, uh, active myself, but I was also coaching on a high level European handball. And then at a course mm-hmm. there, one of the sort of top level courses there, I had uh, Beng Salcin as a uh, as a teacher, and I heard about Beng Salcin, and he he's not at the me- he was not at the medical school, though he's medically educated, but he was uh, at the natural science faculty, and um, I asked him whether I could uh, come and do some research because I was interested and curious about how the body is functioning. Mm-hmm. I didn't study medicine necessarily to to uh, sort of save mankind i studied actually to find out how things are going on in the human body and um, he was very open but he said to me at that time which was quite interesting uh, maybe it was because he was generous or maybe it was because he didn't bother having me he said uh, but you're from the medical school and then he Mm -hmm. said you should go to uh, one of his colleagues a professor there who's called Henry Galbo, who's now retired, mm-hmm. because uh, as Beng Salcin said, he's the only one at the medical faculty who knows anything about medicine or about exercise in medicine. And then I uh, went over and knocked on the door and said, I would like to start doing some research. And Henry Galbo looked at me and said, how far are you in the medical studies? And I said, I'm two years into medical studies. And then he said, then you haven't even finished your physiology course. Uh, I said, no, because that's on the third year. And then he said, you can call me back when you've uh, passed that exam. And then I called him a year later. And then he said, oh, we better find something for you to do. So then he was my main supervisor during my PhD mm-hmm. with Beng Salcin as the co-supervisor at that time. So so it all sort of have, has come together there. And the rest is history, because then I stayed there doing a, a research. That's an interesting background. So, did you even know that Bank Saltine was a big name at that time, or uh, in? Oh exercise? yeah, I did. I mean, I, uh-huh. in fa- in fact, I actually had during uh, during the 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 third year of medical school, I actually uh, was able to buy one of the books about the first biochemistry and exercise meetings, and had looked into that, and I knew Bank Saltine was was very much at that time very much into the descriptive phases of a lot of exercises, and then of course when I joined Henrik Galbo's lab, I um, I obviously went into the more metabolism and and hormonal mm. field, um, so so that was my um, well in Denmark it's the medical uh, doctor of medical science, but it would be like a PhD program for three years where I then studied uh, primarily the sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and what was going on during exercise, how mo- how much was regulated from the brain, how much from the muscle. And also, of course, spent a lot of years looking at the liver uh, glucose production, what is really regulating the blood sugar during uh, during exercise. So those were sort of two two years at the at the um, at the uh, medical faculty here for research department of physiology. And then I spent a year uh, as a postdoc at Stanford, uh, where I then got in touch with, with Gerald Reven, who's now who's now unfortunately dead, but he was sort of the father of syndrome X and metabolic syndrome. And uh, there we got to do some exercise studies on type 2 diabetics. And then after I came back and then I sort of took my own track there. That's that's how I, I knew you. So during my PhD in 1991 and 1995, there's all these papers. I was doing glucose metabolism. So there's all these papers, obviously Galbo, uh, Henrik Galbo, and then Eric Richter, who I had on four or five podcasts ago who, who was also studied with 
elbow. And then your stuff, and I couldn't believe your, and it's funny, I'm here in Copenhagen doing invasive studies with Eric Richter now myself, but I couldn't believe the stuff you did with the liver, the your, your epidurals and, and um, yeah, epidural and then electrically stimulating the, the leg muscles to contract to then see. <laughs> Why don't you just blocking, tell us a quick, yeah. And blocking, blocking the celiac ganglion was also very sort of uh, uh, challenging to do, but, but that's right. We were trying to find out whether it was the, whether there was the the brain or the muscle that was really in control, and 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 the quick answer at the end was that that they're both important, and depending on which hormones you're looking at, uh, it was uh, it, it was either the signals from the muscle or uh, the central effort, and it basically comes back to to the old story that that August Crow and Linhardt started with with the regulation of of both the circulation and uh, heart rate and ventilation. Uh, so it's funny there is a parallel there. So. Well, I actually quote, I don't know, hopefully I'm quoting it properly, but I quite often say how there's a lot of redundancy. So something that's so important is, you know, glucose release from the liver, there's redundancy. So if you knock, you know, knock the muscles out, so there's no feedback, you still have some glucose uptake. If you if you knock the, the signal from the brain, you still get glucose output. And it's this similar thing with, um, you know, breathing. So you just said heart rate and breathing, you know, you try and look at regulation of breathing and, and it's like, it's so important nope. that something else will kick in. No, I think I mean I think you're you're totally right. I think it's a, a, a respiration physiologist Julius Comero. We wrote in one of the book uh, the retrospectoscope where he says that if there is an important thing to be taken care of in the human body, there's probably more than one way to do it, and that was mm -hmm. exactly what we found out because there were all these nice. Um, uh, animal studies also from Eric Richter and others which showed that if you manipulated a certain thing you could you could alter the the glucose uh, production but but in humans whether we took the nerves away by studying people who were liver transplanted or we did other uh, acute changes we could still not uh, get uh, to the core of it and 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 after many years of studies there Actually, one of the last uh, studies in that regards that I did together with uh, David Wasserman uh, from the U.S., that was actually showing that it is the ratio between glucagon and insulin that probably is a, a very important factor for the release of, of sugar from the liver. But um, but that's how it is sometimes. We we didn't we were not able to pick out sort of a magic factor that was really the one that 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 uh, nailed it, but. Um, but we were able, I think, to manipulate human models as as much as we could, at least. So well, that's a good advertisement for my podcast as well, because I've had David Wasserman on the podcast, and that was interesting as well. Because for a while there, they'd say the glucagon didn't really change much during exercise, but it's because that was just the the uh, systemic. If you look at the mm -hmm. you know the portal vein, you see it, it did, etc. So, no, but, but yeah, that, and that's a good that's a good point. And he was we met up because he was studying a lot in dogs, and we were doing it in humans. And then we had a, a common uh, postdoc who then joined the lab here, and we did a study together. So that's yeah, yeah. And the redundancy thing is similar again with Eric Richter because we I was in the corridor the other day. Eric Richter, Jan Modicheski, and myself, and Jan's been on the podcast as well, Jorgen. And we're saying how, if you look at regulation of glucose uptake in the muscle, so in the mouse studies, you know, you look at knockout AMPK and they still have normal glucose uptake pretty much. I've done nitric oxide and knocked out NOS and they still have normal glucose uptake. And then the studies showing you knock out CAM kinase. Still, so it's like there's just all this redundancy. So it makes it hard to study. But, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's, that's a very good point. And, and, and for many years, you can say that, that this has been a, a big discussion and also in relation to publication. 
And I mean, I don't, no offense, but but it's really difficult to get invasive human studies really published well, because you can always argue in the humans that you have not knocked out it totally. And mm-hmm. a lot of the knockout things in humans would probably cause death in people if you did it. But but mm-hmm. but uh, in in animals you can you can very often have a a clean cleaner model, but the question is whether it really means something for for humans and exactly. and and well, it's very very elegant that you can in different models show the importance of a certain factor and that can be sort of uh, you know a a proof that it it has an important role. I think it's hypothesis creating and not necessarily solving the question because a lot of studies. Even even studies which are published very very well from cellular or molecular or animal work cannot be reproduced in humans. In fact, there are studies mm-hmm. where they try it in humans and they avoid putting it into the publication because that will deduct from the news exactly. of the publication. Because it's actually it has is it is nice to know, but it hasn't got a real importance for human body. Yeah, that's why I think it's important to sort of try and look at both. It's a bit hard, but you know. I've been doing it, Eric does it. You, you do your human studies as much as you can. You know, we had one study, we had seven catheters in each person, femoral artery, femoral vein, both legs, infusing microbubbles and looking at contrast enhanced ultrasound yeah. for muscle blood flow and insulin and glucose. But then you do your knockout. You think, oh, I think it's this enzyme. And so then you knock it out. But um, anyway, so this is very interesting. So that that's how I got to know your work initially. And so you've gone from liver and then why don't you tell us how you moved, uh, you know, you were talking yeah. about muscle there then, and then into tendon. Then, mm-hmm. Yeah, then it moved. I mean, the the, the, the quick uh, the quick answer is then it moved a little bit um, from from this uh, this liver glucose production because then we wanted to find a model where maybe there was some more chronic changes. And that got me into the, uh, the area of spinal cord injury where I went to the New York to learn to electrically stimulate uh, spinal cord patients who could then activate their muscle, which they had no control over. And that was sort of the, the entrance was the liver glucose production and hormonal production. But it got me into uh, more into muscle changes and looking at what's actually happening in, in muscle, um, muscle fiber changes, contractility. And for some years, uh, I, I did some studies within that area. And uh, and focused more on on muscle as such, not necessarily on the metabolism, but more on the structural changes, hypertrophy, atrophy, what happened with uh, with uh, stimulation and in, in different kinds. And then at that time point, I had finished my my specialty education and uh, uh, become a, became a chief physician. And then they got uh, they, there was a possibility of making a professorship in sports medicine. And that made mm-hmm. a big change for me because then I really went in to all the sports injuries. And that's where, you know, clinically, that was really where my interest was. And therefore, I, when I looked at the different injuries, and we're going to talk about a little bit about muscle, a little bit about tendon, mm-hmm. it became very clear to me that a lot of the textbooks on sports injuries were, you know, there were guidelines for what to do, but there were really not many studies behind it. Uh, it was very sort of pragmatic approach. Maybe there was a little bit of a clinical study, but no one really dig into or dug into what was actually going on in the tissue. And especially mm-hmm. when we come to the connective tissue, like tendon, that that has been. Um, and I mean, we're 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 coming from almost the same generation, so we remember that 
that at studies at, at conferences, American College of Sports Medicine, I mean, there was maybe one small section on bone, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And uh, tendons and ligaments, that was something for biomechanics people, because that was very inert tissue. And uh, is, mm-hmm. there was a tissue that either held or it was broken. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, muscle was much more dynamic. And that's what so so I, I tried to go into the to, to the connective tissue, especially tendon very early. And uh, I got I mean, the, the real story is that I got an invitation from physiological reviews to write about sympathetic control of metabolism. And I wrote back to them and said, I've actually shifted area and uh, <laughs> I wanted to write mm-hmm. of something else. And they accepted that. And that took okay. me, I think, three, quor- three quarters of a year to do a, a, as a single author, to do a physiological review paper wow. with, I think, 700 references. But it made me dig into the field of uh, connective tissue. And that's where it all started, basically. And then we were, we were going into that. There was, at that time, there was a, a English researcher who is unfortunately dead today, uh, Michael Rennie, who is mm-hmm. interested in protein metabolism. And he was actually sort of uh, discreetly also interested in connective tissue. So when we started trying to find out that there was actually more going on in the connective tissue than we thought, there was some dynamics in the tissue. It's not just an inert tissue. Then he became interested in some of the first studies we did on protein turnover and uh, change of tissue, renewal of collagen was actually with him. And uh, we we stayed uh, long-term friends until he, he unfortunately passed away. Uh, and that was actually the transition. And from then on, I kept my interest in muscle, um, also in the hormones, but mostly in, in, in muscle adaptation with, uh, with inpatients, uh, bed rest, uh, training, aging, but a very, very vital interest in the connective tissue of tendon. So therefore, it's very interesting that, that some of my colleagues are actually catching up now on studying the myotendinous junctions because it all comes together Mm -hmm. and the things are actually uh, connected in in a very nice way i think so so that's the the very short story of how how the transition took place and then it was more accepted in the sports medicine field rather than studying glucose metabolism yeah it's interesting we had i had abigail mackey on she was talking about the muscular tendon disjunction. And I, and I, I, cause I haven't been working in the area. I, I was sort of still back in the, the dark ages sort of thing, not realizing there was so much going on. And um, even the, uh, the, the, my, uh, the neuromuscular junction and, you know, all this stuff that you just think you don't really sort of think about. You just think all oh, the messages just sent across. And so there's and a lot the, going and on. And sorry? the story, just sorry, a quick one. Uh, the, the, the interesting small story there is actually that, that, uh, some 20 years ago, I was invited over to be a PhD opponent in Ireland at Ma- Abigail mm-hmm. Mackey's PhD. And that mm-hmm. was actually about connective tissue in muscle, because very many people have looked at muscle, but but connective tissue was like, mm-hmm. at that time, it's like you cut when you do a biopsy. So, so um, you, you want to get rid of it when you have the it's biopsy. It's just what you out. cut so, through when you do a biopsy. Exactly. <laughs> So what happened is that 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 Abigail then came over for a postdoc, and then she stayed uh, on here in Copenhagen, and recently, as you know, have became full professor, and is really now looking into the myotendinous junction and also the neuromuscular interaction. So, so this is really an example that that the the whole connection between muscle contraction and the connective tissue 
has a wide range, uh, and and in this case, it's it's been the the interface. It's not just two tissues that meet by a coincidence. So so I'm very yeah. happy for that. That today that the connective tissue is much has much more attention than it had earlier. I wanted to say that was pretty brave of you doing a physiological review on something that you know, you'd only sort of relatively recently moved into, because I, I, it reminded me that there's a colleague of mine. I won't say his name in Australia, but he got he got hassled by his university. They said you only published like two papers last year, but one of them was a physiological review, single author. It's like, like give me a break. No, that's a huge. But, I mean, it um, was it was it was reviewed, and and it was. I mean. For me, it was a check that that at least uh, you know I, I wasn't completely ignorant in the field, but it was really a steep learning curve, because to going into all the matrix proteins coming from very sort of uh, comfortable uh, words in in glucose metabolism, it was a big shift. And and uh, but the turnover thing and the tissue turnover is is still close to my heart, and the methods are about the same. It's just now more protein turnover than it is uh, fat and and carbohydrate metabolism. Um, so. so that's interesting. So I guess doing that, you would have, you know, set yourself up, you could have 20 years of research questions would have come out from doing that, that review, right? To see, you would have seen how little was known about a lot of, a lot of areas. Yeah, but I mean, that, that, that's of course, that's of course exactly your, uh, your, your point. And, and I've looked back to that uh, a lot of times, but, but it's also a, a, a big risk. And I, I remember a lot of uh, American, especially American colleagues who said the, uh, you know that's very stupid of you to going away from a field because now you've made your name in one field. You can't, you know, and and that's not been a thing for me. It's it's more I had an interest and uh, I don't care, you know. If uh, and it could be a blind uh, alley, but uh, uh, but I think we've at least moved it a little bit uh, in that area. And I think for the for the clinicians, it's extremely important. And I mean, it's you know it better than me also that there's a lot of hype on translational research and people want to combine clinic with basic science but it's not easy and some people think translational research is just identifying one molecule that could lead to another but but to have truly translational research requires that you get the clinicians to say hey um there there are things going on on a, on a, a more detailed level and i think and and you know it also that that there is a tradition here in Denmark that a lot of us who are MDs are involved. Eric Richter is one example. There are several others, Ben de Klaalo, and who are medical doctors but have uh, stayed in in research um, and collaborated the whole time with people with other backgrounds, whether it be from exercise mm -hmm. physiology, molecular uh, biochemistry, whatever. And I think that is a very, very fruitful thing. And we we still have today uh, my own lab, but also all the other labs here in Copenhagen have a mixture of people with different backgrounds. And I think that's where the new ideas come up. And uh, I think it's an advantage. Okay. It's obviously working out yeah, because, I mean, it's not a coincidence I'm here, I guess. And it's not a coincidence that um, I've had, I don't know, seven or eight people on that are from Copenhagen. <laughs> All right, so this is a good uh, background, and just I know let's move on a bit, but that was it was kind of brave switching areas because you know when you go for grants they obviously want you to have a track record, and so I've got a track record but not in this, <laughs> but um, obviously you did well, so it's a good message there for people. Okay, so what do we think about um, muscle? So you know a lot of people were probably still thinking about like me, you know maybe not thinking about the turnover of proteins and. And so what, what's actually going on in muscle? How does it interact with the tendon? So you've obviously got the muscle, the muscular tendon disjunction, the tendon. How do these things interact? 
and and why do they get injured? So, okay, why don't you start talking about muscles and all the stuff there, I guess. Yeah, we can. I mean, basically, I mean, overall, you can say that there are, there are, of course, like in any other case, there are there are acute things and there are more chronic things. And 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 the acute things uh, clearly would be that you have some kind of rupture. And that rupture could either be that the tendon will tear. Most people know about the Achilles tendon rupture that can happen, uh, or it's what we would call a muscle strain injury, which which predominantly happens in the myotendinous uh, junction. So, but also can ha happen, of course, further up in, in in the muscle. But it's clear that that those are sort of very acute events, and and you're not in doubt when you have such an injury with sports mm -hmm. that there is a so sudden onset. And even if you're very motivated, you cannot complete your hundred meter race or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then there are the overuse injuries, and those will not. Um, attack the muscle. They are predominantly in the tendon and the surrounding of tendon. And, and overuse injuries has been sort of a, you know, people have not really realized what's going on. There was a, a belief for many years that overuse is maybe it's a small partial rupture, like a stress fracture in, in bone, that maybe it's a small tear and it doesn't heal. But there's more and more signs that that's probably not the case, especially in tendon. And and is it a problem? Yeah, it's a major problem because it's uh, you can say if you take top athletes, for instance, the the by far prominent reason for stopping career that's overuse injuries. It could be jumper's knee if it's around the knee. It could be the Achilles tendon. It could be in the shoulder. It could be in the elbow. So so it's not something you just could uh, could put away. And if you're if you're a recreational athlete. It really is an annoying thing, and and if you're, I remember a, a colleague from medical school who said he didn't want to become you know musculoskeletal. It's not really interesting. He wants something with with uh, neuroscience or cardiology, something real acute things. You know where it really is life and death. And he phoned and he said the other thing is just a small thing. And he phoned me recently, and now he's over sixty. So he said. Yeah, I have a problem in my knee. I said, you're not dying from it. So it's not a big problem. He said, it's so annoying. It spoils my whole, uh, you know, life quality. And I said, then we better look at it. But it's just to say that that I think it's really something that that limits people's ability to do something and, and to find out. And that's really, you can say, the overall uh, theme for, for why I've gone into this is I want to find out what is really causing it not necessarily sort of factors that could lead to it but what is actually going on what's the pathogenesis of it what is what comes first what comes next because because preferable we would like to find uh, a thermometer that could take you mm. know that could tell you i have been running 10k today i'm a little bit sore is it something i should be worried about in my achilles tendon or could i run tomorrow and that's really what we would like to get in that situation. We are getting closer and having more and more science also how to treat it. But but if we could if we know what is happening and what the sequence is, then we can also better jump in and say this is an early stage. This is a warning sign. You should be take care of that. So that that's the really overall question. Okay, can I just ask the basics? So like you said, sometimes it's the muscle, sometimes it's the muscular tenderness junction signs it's tendon do we actually know why so you know i'm a bit self-centered here but when i run and i we can talk about age later but just calf injuries right and i and i and sometimes it feels like it's in a different spot i go hang on i thought it was there and now it's like over here and and it feels you know is it 
is that the muscles that the is it musculotendinous junction mm. and mm. so do mm. we actually know why um no i mean see me looking down at my cuff yeah sorry no we could actually know why yeah Mm. yeah i mean you if you if you take the acute ones it's clearly a one loading that is too high compared to what it can tolerate and that could be sort of a special position or something the overuse is simply also too much load over too long time could either be intensity or just the 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 total volume but we don't know today who's actually registering it down in the muscle or the tendon and say, hey, now we're approaching that we can't do it. But but the obvious thing biomechanically is, of course, that you have a muscle that clearly is shortening and you have a tendon that is lengthening. And, and there is a mismatch because the, the muscle would like to contract very much. And the tendon is, is a little bit soft, but it's also, it takes some time for it. It has viscoelastic properties. So we, if you do a contraction very fast, you know, you 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 the, the tendon will appear relatively stiff, and especially if you take the 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 patella, the patella tendon, it's relatively stiff, and that means that you have a a part of this unit that really has to withhold or withstand this muscle contraction. Okay. And normally, it, that's a beneficial thing because you don't want if you want to jump, you don't want to have it take three seconds before you can jump. You want the tendon to be stiff, but you are loading it. A lot in that situation. So, so why does it happen? Because we do too much compared to what it can tolerate. Yeah. So even if it's like, so with mine, I used to be a distance runner, so I do a lot, right? But then, then I'll go, okay, I'm going to try and get back into running and, and see if my calf goes. I'll run one day, twenty minutes, fine. Next day, three three days later, twenty minutes, fine. Next day, three hundred meters into it, my calf goes. So, but I guess you you would say that's just too much because you've gone from doing nothing. To doing like twenty yeah, minutes, I mean, three days it, later, twenty minutes. You can you can say you can say that a lot of the exercise we do, especially if they're very explosive and we wanna wanna run very explosive or jump, that is not necessarily a good training for the connective tissue uh, in itself. It might be good for the muscle because you, you can plyometric training and you wanna have these explosive things, but for the for the connective tissue, it's not necessarily a good training. It's a test of the equipment it's like taking a small car and trying to drive through europe with it it's not necessarily good for the motor or running a marathon that in itself mm -hmm. is probably not healthy but it's a test of whether you can do it so 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 the point here is that there is something that is not cannot withstand uh, these very uh, many repetitions of explosive things and in your case if i don't know how how much just going for an easy job mm -hmm. yeah but but if you have, I mean, it sounds like, especially if it's in the calf, it could very be that you had a smaller muscle strain injury. And of course, then what you do is you will then take some rest and then you'll start again and see how it works. And maybe forgetting that the things will not just heal by itself. I mean, it does, but it just takes much longer time. So when you think you don't have pain and I can start again, there is still a healing process that is by far not completed. And 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 sports people don't want to wait for several years until <laughs> or for several months before they start again. So that's the other challenge is, of course, to say, can we do a measurement saying that now you can be allowed to go for your run as mm -hmm. you did before? Let's make sure we're clear because I was, I was a bit, I thought, hang on a minute, I had to think about that. 
So make sure people are clear. So muscles, all muscles can do is shorten, really. They contract and shorten. So you're saying while the muscle's contracting to shorten, it's pulling on the tendon, so the tendon's stretching. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's just I with mean, normal I mean, concentric contraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, it, of course, if I mean, if you do, you can take the example, you do an isometric contraction where the muscle, by definition, will, will shorten a little bit. It's just that your extremity doesn't move. But, but the tendon will elongate in that situation. And then, of course, there are variations over that theme depending on you do concentric or eccentric contraction, especially the eccentric contractions because the, 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 the load on the muscle will be high. Then the load on the tendon will also be high. Uh, and, and, I mean, the eccentric contraction is very classical one. Let's say you if you play badminton, for instance, and you and you put your foot back, and that's the, the most frequent, at least in Denmark, reason for, for rupturing your Achilles tendon. You don't get a muscle injury, you rupture your tendon, and that's typically because it's a high load like this. Um, All right, so make, just make sure people are short, clear. So concentric is where the muscle is shortening while it's contracting. Eccentric is contracting, but it's lengthening. Yeah, so like you just showed, if you're not on YouTube, yeah, so if you're lifting a doing a bicep curl when you're lifting it, it's concentric. When you're lowering it and resisting gravity, that's eccentric. And you're saying that's that's so with badminton, they step back and their yeah. calf is contracting while it's actually lengthening and the Achilles yeah. is lengthening. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then and then the combination of of a little bit higher load, we normally joke and say the most frequent uh, course for rupturing your Achilles tendon in badminton is uh, 45 year old, slightly overweight men. So who, mm. who still in their head play exactly as they did when they were 20, they're becoming a little bit more heavy and they're, they're done not in the shape that they were before. And that's also the explanation why, why sometimes in running recreational runners that they think they can run the same as earlier, but they forget that they're not in the same shape. They might also have put on some kilos compared to earlier. Exactly and that right. adding up for many kilometers, of course, plays a role. That's the thing, because I do these 20-minute runs, and then I think, okay, well, no wonder why I'm getting injured, because I'm 30 years, 20 years older or something, and I'm 10 kilos heavier, and I'm surprised mm. that, you know, something's going wrong. Okay, so if we just think again, so I used to think of the muscle as, you know, and you talk about the connective tissue, so you've got the connective tissue throughout the muscle, and then it sort of tapers down and then becomes a tendon. But when I see, when I see um, you know, presentations by Abigail Mackey and things, it doesn't look like that at all. It sort of goes muscle, bang. And then tendon. So is that not yeah. actually what happens? Is that not what? I... That 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 is still that is still I would say uh, debatable, and I, it's definitely so that we can't just see that the, the tendon goes on and then splits out to the intramuscular connective tissue, but it's probably not either correct that it's just sort of stops and then it starts a whole new thing. So so a lot of people in in. Uh, in the physiotherapy area, there are a lot of common beliefs that basically it's one long tendon. There's just some muscle uh, fibers in between at some spots. And that's yeah. probably not exactly the case. And, and especially Rick Lieber in the U.S. has done a lot of good studies on looking into this. It's probably a mixture because you have to use the intramuscular connective tissue. Because in contrast, I mean, in, in muscle, the single muscle cell doesn't go from one end of the muscle to the other. They have, there are longer fibers, there are shorter fibers, but they need the, uh, the connective tissue between the muscle fibers really to transmit the force. In the, in the tendon, and we've shown that both in the patella and the Achilles tendon, human, 
that there the fibril, the, 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 the smallest component or functional component of the tendon, the fibril, actually goes from one end of the, fibril, of the tendon to the other. And that means if you've cut half of your tendon, you have half the force. There's no help between these fibrils. They are, they are lumped together in bundles of fascicles, but, but in essence, they are going from one end to the other. And that's a big difference in this, uh, in this situation. And in the muscle also, the connective tissue has a, a shifting arrangement. So, so I think neither we can say that it's just a tendon that goes on, Neither can we say that it stops and then there's no more connective tissue because there is. And, and Abigail has shown, and you probably talked about that in that uh, podcast, that, that at the end of the muscle, before it comes to the myotendinous junction, already these muscle cells begin, begin to have different qualities as they go closer to the tendon. And probably the same is the case within the tendon, that there's a big difference of whether the tendon is at the insertion of the bone or it's up there where the muscle starts. That makes sense. Have you seen Brian Clancy? Is it Clancy? He he gave a talk here. He was talking about how muscle fibers even don't just go the whole way along. They sort of they split and things. So I guess there's a whole lot going on. And, and are you saying with tendons that some of them split, or that or that they you're just saying that they go the whole way along? Yeah, the the five the fibrils, the smallest unit, are going from one end to the other. So, mm -hmm. so that means that there are, and, and, and if we talk about overuse injuries in the tendon, and I'm just jumping quickly here, but if we talk about those, there is no good evidence that people have been able in human models to see that there is a discontinuation of these fibrils. So what I'm basically saying is when you have an overuse injury, and this is not that it happened this afternoon, but something that comes gradually, where you begin mm -hmm. to be a little bit sore in your tendons after you begin to have, when you start running, it gets a little bit better, then it comes again. And at the end, you have pain all the time. And we cannot in those situations, we can see changes inside the tendon, but we cannot see a discontinuation of these fibrils. So I think the tendinopathy uh, or the overuse injury in tendon is not so much a, a rupture or a discontinuation. It's rather something that is added on and fills up spaces in there, and therefore the tendon swells and attracts water, and that becomes then sore. So, so, so there is there is a a, a mismatch there in terms of uh, what happens in in the tendon and what normally happens in the muscle. And a sore muscle doesn't matter so much. That that goes that will that will go back to normal situation. In muscle, you only have to worry about things that occur like this uh, as an acute thing. Oh, sorry, just clarify that again. Um, I'm so just saying, I'm just itself. saying that if, yeah, if you if you look at a tendon, you can have an acute injury, which is of course a rupture, a partial rupture, mm -hmm. or you have overuse injury where it begins to be more and more sore. It has more and more pain uh -huh. in the muscle. In the muscle, you have either mm -hmm. the acute injury, or mm -hmm. it's just a little bit uh, overload from training. So if you've been out running and you're a little bit sore in your muscle. You shouldn't take that very serious because that's more like a soreness, uh, and uh, that is just uh, late onset muscle soreness, and and will be better. But you can actually. So back to me. Sorry, it's about me, of course. Uh, with my calf, I know, I know, because it's up high in the, in the head. You know, the head is is sometimes I feel like I'll just be running and I just feel a bit of a tear, and then I'm like limping, and sometimes it ends up like black the next couple of days or whatever. So it's been bleeding in there. That can't yeah. be the tendon, yeah. right? It's higher up. No, no, no. 
and you're saying don't worry about obviously I have to worry about it right but um you're saying that won't become a chronic thing is that what you're saying what are you saying no about? I'm saying I'm saying I'm saying that you have probably as from what I hear you probably have a small it started probably with a smaller muscle injury and um, mm -hmm. that would be my guess but of course if there is a bleeding then you are tearing some of the vessels that are inside the muscle and that is mm -hmm. definitely not in the tendon uh, there is a little bit of blood flow in there's the tendon blood. But it's very yeah, exactly there's not much blood there so 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 it's probably a a a recurrent uh, small rupture of a part of your muscle that doesn't have it so uh, so good and there is some scar tissue probably also yeah exactly scar tissue yeah so that's the thing because i wasn't sure i thought you were saying like if you do an acute muscle injury don't worry about it it won't become a chronic thing no sure no, 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 like no, it no. Does. not i wasn't saying that i was just saying uh -huh. that acute muscle injury is a real injury if you just have been out running and you feel sore and you have no history of uh, acute oh, yeah. muscle injury then it's just because you overdid something with a muscle that was maybe not uh, trained enough or or not strong enough so so no 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 uh, you definitely uh, and this is a this is a very interesting aspect of muscle injury is that no matter how well you recover uh, the it takes some time for the connective tissue really to recover in the muscle and, and there is reason to believe that like on the skin, if you have a, a, a wound on the skin, uh, a traumatic wound, uh, okay. uh, there will be some scar tissue, ah, and there probably okay. there will also be some scar tissue. It's 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 only when it was basically before you were born that that uh, the muscle totally heals up, and you cannot see there's been anything. So That's... so there will be some scar tissue in there. It will never go back exactly to the place it was before. Well, that's what I reckon, because you know, I'll stop talking about my own calf. But if you were here, you could feel it's like a lump on there. It's like, all right. So mm. if we go back to the tenant. Okay. But there's just another thing there. What determines why, so in that situation, why the, the muscle goes versus the muscular tenderness versus the tendon? Do you know? Is it the forces? Is it because it's concentric, eccentric? Do you know? That's, that, that's, still, that's still a tricky question. It's something with the forces, of course, but... But it can also be, I mean, if you take the calf, you have this uh, sort of delicate balance between the, your soleus and your gastrocnemius, the two major muscles there. And they are both contributing to going down into the to the Achilles tendon. If, if you look at some of the people who who ruptured their Achilles tendon, for instance, the classical the classical small picture of, of David Beckham rupturing it, it mm. wasn't very a high load. He was just turning. And he was in very well good shape. So, so in some ways, uh, we cannot exactly describe it, but there, there will be a, a bigger load on one of the things than than on the other. Um, and especially these very quick uh, eccentric um, stop uh, stopping movements that will probably hit the tendon very hard. Whereas if you're in a a constant activity where there is eccentric contraction, also like jumping and or running fast. Um, that will then be the myotendinous junction uh, more. But but it's a good point. It's not possible to say exactly where you will have the injury if you get one. It is weird, isn't it? Because you, as you said with David Beckham, it's the same. There's a guy, Justin Marshall. So we just had the Rugby World Cup, and uh, I love the. I was born in New Zealand, so I was going to be the All Blacks, and they lost. But anyway, um, but anyway, classic. He was just running to score a try, you know. So I don't know if you know rugby, but just just running. He was just, you know doing all day every day running, and he just suddenly like five meters from the try line, he his total Achilles just ruptured. You know, like nothing. He wasn't changing direction, nothing. 
So it must, it must be a bit hard. That's, you know, you said you want to get to the point of sticking a thermometer or making some decision. That's yeah. very that's very strange. And we we I mean I I I actually saw that one also. Um, and uh, um, because I was in South Africa recently and followed this uh, uh, this World Cup there. Oh, so but, but it, it, no no we won't. Um, but uh, but it's clear that that there are situations where people probably should not have taken the sprint or should not have run, but we just don't know it. And and you, it's a very, very well taken point. We also have some track and field people where you are surprised that it happens in the tendon where you think, why was that during a warm up period with things they've done a thousand th times before? Mm. So, yeah. mm. so you mentioned about that thing about uh, how a tendon sometimes can warm up and feel better. Do you know what's going on there? So you'll think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I don't, my, my Achilles doesn't feel that good or whatever. Sure, and then you sure. start well, running and it I mean, feels better. The, 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 the research so far, what we have of information is that, that if we look at the things that occur early in, in this overuse injury situation, then it looks like that one of the early things that happens is a, an accumulation of water in the tendon. So it simply swells. Exactly where the water is, we don't know. But what we know is that there are some molecules that are more prominent uh, in that situation. The, there are some glycosaminoglycans from the proteoglycan complex, but it doesn't matter so much what they are called, but it's more it's substances that have both a hydrophilic but also an osmotic effect. And that means it can attract water. And we've seen some, some observations in top athletes where they have pain in the Achilles tendon, but it's still not really swollen, not so to the extent that you can see it on ultrasound or feel it or MRI. But you can, with some MRI techniques, see that there is some water accumulation locally. And they're also sore. So the first thing that happens when you are overusing an in, uh, a tendon, Achilles tendon, for instance, is that it, it's not painful when you run. But if I palpate it, or if you palpate it yourself, mm -hmm. you're sore. And you might mm -hmm. also have a little bit of morning stiffness, soreness. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning. And that's probably, and I, it's not solid proof yet, but it's probably so that that is the water accumulating in there. And that's the first thing that happens. And once the water accumulation becomes bigger, the tendon becomes more swollen. And it's like if you inject it forcefully water into it, it will also be painful. And that's then painful when you use the tendon. And I think what happens in the, the early phase is that this water is not very strictly bound. It's maybe sort of a more like a swelling thing. So once you warm it up, or at least use the tendon, or it could be stretching exercises. Maybe you can squeeze some of that water out in the beginning. Mm -hmm. The problem is once you've done your run, it will come back again. Or you could also, okay. you could argue that just doing a massage of the tendon could probably help it in the beginning when it's not so severe. Then at the later stage, when you've had it for, let's say, a month or two months, then it begins to be some ingrowth of maybe some more vessels, maybe some nerves that are coming in. So that really contains also some, some pain sensing uh, thing. And then there begins to come a, a tissue change. So, so we can see that new formation of collagen, there is a normal formation of collagen constantly, but an excess formation of it doesn't come until two to three months into to the phase of overuse. So, so I think the early stage is that you have a little bit, bit of more water accumulation, and then some of the other tissue changes come later on. And it's, it's also from some of the studies we've done pretty clear that if you have an overuse injury, for instance, in the Achilles tendon, 
and you had it for a, a month, for instance, a shorter period of time, then you're much faster back again than if you had it for three to four months. And the, the explanation is most likely that in the early phase, it's reversible water accumulation. And in the later stage, mm -hmm. you begin to have some structural changes and it will take mm -hmm. exactly, and it will take longer time. So, so if, I mean, it's also sometimes a common myth that you can rupture your tendon because you have pain in it. And there's no sign that this is the case. So it's not that you should be worried that you rupture the tendon just because it's a little painful. But what you can say to people is if you train on with pain in your Achilles tendon, you can do so, but be aware that the, young, the longer time you train with it mm. in a painful situation, it will take you longer to come back. And that's important for some people who are in the competitive season. They want to have two more matches. Mm. You can do so, but be aware that it will take you longer time. And if you train with very painful things, and a lot of basket and volleyball players have constantly pain around the knee uh, because they have jumper's knee, as we call it, the patella tendon, which is affected. And if they train with that pain for a long time, there's some data that indicate that they will also mm -hmm. keep that pain for a very, very long time uh, after that. So, just, so to bring it together, so you were saying earlier that, that basically it sounds like early on when you've got a tendon, a sore, a sore tendon, if you biopsy that, you'll find it's just the normal tendon structure. And that tendon structure, even later as you get worse, if you keep training on it and it's sore, that original structure won't change. It's more that you're laying down new things and pain receptors. Yeah, and, and, therefore, and therefore in the beginning it will be just water, so it will just, water. the distance between the fascicle will just be a little bit bigger, and that can be shown. Okay. And then in the later stage you can say that you have some, 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 there's some new connective tissue coming in. And that, of course, if you take a biopsy there, it will look a little bit more disturbed, but, but the main fibers or the fibrils, they are still there. It's, it's just in fine. between those there will be some some changes. And, and that, of course, can take some time before that can be, let's say, replaced or at least uh, be normalized again. So Sorry, but you're saying within the original core, yeah. you have stuff yeah. laid down, not just on the outside. Exactly. No, not just on the outside. And that was also uh, sort of a question that's been around for a long time. Is it only in the outside that things are happening? No, we, we cannot see any big difference in the dynamics of what's going on in the tendon, whether you're on the surface or you're in the middle of the tendon. And, and, and our, med our measurements show that you have a turnover in the tendon, but it's not in the entire tendon. So most likely, and there were several studies showing that, that most likely you have a dynamic renewal of the tissue while you are growing. And once you're 16, 17, you're basically left with a tendon that you're going to live with the rest of your life. And yeah. in that in that tendon, around maybe 5% of, of the the matrix proteins, which is dominated by collagen, will be turned over, maybe in a circadian fashion. That's what we're trying to prove right now. But there are some indications that you have a homeostatic circadian rhythm where you actually, like when you've reused the classroom and it's dirty and somebody comes and cleans it up and then it looks nice next morning. So okay. there is some kind of, well, not renewal, but sort of a, a homeostasis of the dynamic part. And those dynamic parts are probably the one where you then accumulate fragments of uh, proteins that then can attract water. And that's the course oh, for okay. the difference between a normal training. If you then run 10K two days in a row, you will accumulate a little bit of water and that becomes worse and worse. So, 
So that's where we are right now in, in, in understanding what's going on in the center. So it's more nice. dynamic than we thought 20 years ago. It's interesting because it all fits together as well. So in muscle, you've got muscle turnover, you've got autophagy, you've got mitophagy. And, you know, we know that's actually important to be breaking down the mitochondria and turning it over. And if you end up with, with old bits that aren't removed properly, it causes problems. Same thing in the tendon, yeah? You're saying you want to be turning it over. Sure, and, sure. And I mean, I mean, especially, I think if a few years ago, we looked at that and autophagy seems also to be a very important role to keeping this thing going. Right now, blood, blood. We touched on blood flow. There isn't much blood flow at all in tendons. Is that right? So, yeah, that's right. That's right. But but, but there they is are some. getting water. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah, but there 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 are some vessels in the tendon. It's just compared to the muscle, it's much less. And there is also a rise in the flow in the tendon with exercise, uh, yes. and uh, that can be shown. But it's just at a much large, uh, smaller scale. But but the whole idea, and this is really where we don't know enough. Uh, in the clinic, we use a ultrasound, and then we have sort of a measurement with Doppler to see whether there is an increased flow in the tendon. But that really just measures that there is more blood in there. So we really mm -hmm. don't know whether there are more vessels or it's just the dilation of the vessels that are there. Some animal studies show that you, with training, you are increasing your stimulation of substances that will make new vessels or new vascularization. But we don't really know what is happening in humans. And the interesting thing is that we use this sign with, with too much blood flow and hypervascularization as a diagnostic sign for having an overuse. But if you take elite athletes, a lot of them have a lot of blood flow and you find the same mm -hmm. thing, but they never had pain. So, mm. so there is maybe a correlation. And it's also so that if, if top athletes have a lot of these changes with a lot of flow, they're more prone to get problems down the road, but a lot of them don't get it. So it's not really a good prognostic sign because mm. that could have been the thermometer, which you say, okay, if I can see some mm. more blood vessels coming now, uh, you should uh, hold the horses and, and not run so much. But, but unfortunately, it could, at this time point, uh, I mean, I don't want to be too definitive, but it looks more like the, the blood flow is a kind of an innocent bystander that like you get more vessels when you train. Maybe you also get more vessels when you in the tendon when you train. And then uh, if you then have an overuse injury and you have fluid coming in, you have some changes in the tissue, then you might form more vessels. But it's it and it's not necessarily a good marker for what's wrong. It's kind of like with the knee in the back, you know, if you scan people's knees and backs, you'll find something. It doesn't mean it's what's causing the pain or or whatever. But you're saying That's so they point. have more blood flow, more blood vessels uh, basally, you're saying, just at rest? Yeah, yeah, at rest. And I mean, basically, we've, there's no really good technique so far to, to, to see how many vessels there are. I mean, we basically uh -huh. just measure how much blood is coming through. And then we're currently looking into that and to see whether we can see if it's more vessels uh, um, when you have tendinopathy. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So with training, is it does it depend on if, if it's endurance or strength? I mean, so with strength training, when people get hypertrophy, do they get a thicker tendon as well as a normal response to the training? They, 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 they do so if they've trained for a long time and probably – if they've been training while they were also growing. We've, we've looked at people who, who, have, who do asymmetric sports like fencing or badminton where you have one leg 
favorable in front. And you can see that not only is the muscle a little bit thicker on that side, but the tendon is also. But we've tried to train people for nine months, uh, naive runners, and they didn't get bigger tendons. But but if you look at people who are volleyball players, they have thicker tendons than kayak rowers in the Achilles tendon, for instance. So 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 the, the quick question the quick answer is yes, it will adapt to a certain extent. But if you take adult people, there's probably very, very little adaptation in, in that sense. Okay. But uh, but it could still make an adaptation that uh, what we can see that in trained people there is a little bit of a higher turnover. So the, the small portion that is actually turning over is actually turning over faster. Uh, we don't know exactly okay. how much exercise you need to do, but what we do know is if you put people to bed for two weeks or take one leg and immobilize it, you can see that this turnover, circadian turnover, is going totally to zero. So basically, the reason why we don't recommend just rest is that you're pretty mm -hmm. sure that everything goes to zero. And it's almost like the, you 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 just you haven't just stopped the car. You've also turned up the engine. So so you have mm -hmm. sort of to to kickstart the whole thing again when you then start. And that's probably one of the reasons why people who just use rest as a treatment they will then have problems when they start again because also all you know regenerative processes also go slower uh, if you don't do uh, some kind of exercise. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Now, I know we've been Achilles-centric, and I'm going to keep doing being Achilles-centric, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, the classic thing, I guess, is if you have a calf injury, uh, a sore Achilles. Oh, well, let's talk about it. So, so sore Achilles tendon, right? Part of you is telling you to, to rest. And part of you is telling you to, to keep moving, at least walking. And part of you is, is thinking, especially since I saw one of your talks a few years ago, is maybe I should train the crap out of it. Um, because I'll tell you, I got, I got a friend, right? Richard, well, there you go. Richard Sarkis, my mate. Now he told me years and years ago, he had all these Achilles problems from running. Right. And, and he, he'd heard someone say that, that they had an Achilles problem that they wouldn't operate on. They said, operate on my Achilles. They wouldn't operate on it. It's like, and it just kept going for months and months and months. Wouldn't go away. Got frustrated and said, okay, okay you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do calf raises, really hard calf raises until my Achilles just ruptures and then they'll have to go in there and operate on it. Okay. So what he did is he's really hard. You probably heard the and really, really hard calf raises and it didn't rupture. It got better. Right. And then that made sense. when I saw your talk, because you said when you've got a, a chronic uh, Achilles problem, then you actually go in there and cut it, cut it. And it's like, it fires it up again or something. So just my, my very, I'm sure you'll give a proper explanation is that, that it's become so chronic. It's almost become, like normal and it, and, the, and the and it's not getting fixed and then if you stress the crap out of it then you have this infiltration of you know and you start to fix it yeah. so whether yeah. it's sticking a fork in but there or no but it's the, the 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 point here is that you need mechanical loading and you do it with heavy slow resistance training because there you have a a loading of the tendon it's not enough just to do stretching but you have to do uh, loading of it, but it's controlled loading. It's not the eccentric component. There's no plyometric component where you sort of jump or something. It's a a constant sort of uh, a little bit concentric and eccentric, but a heavy slow resistance training. And and more recently, we've also shown that even at lower loads, uh, because you said you have to beat the hell out of it, but but you can also at lower loads, even at sixty percent. 50% of what you can lift one time, which okay. is lower than you normally would use for, for muscle growth, 
there you can also see an effect. So there's no doubt that this controlled loading of it is a good thing. And I think it's because the turnover rate is going up in that portion of it that can be uh, turned over. Uh, and that is probably what is what is happening there. Um, whereas uh, what causes the pain and why this person has is is all these landing things or or in running or jumping. And, and that in itself doesn't make it go away. So, so you, you stimulate something down there that maybe only exercise can stimulate because we have not found any drug or any injectable things that are equally good uh, to make a quick fix. And I think that's, that's one of the lessons from both muscle injury and also tendon injury is that it doesn't look like that any pharmacological agent can replace the use mm -hmm. of uh, the muscle and tendon. It might be that some of the uh, things can help, but uh, but it's not in itself a magic uh, thing. It's like everything with glucose metabolism, whatever it is, it, it always ends up generally that exercise is the best thing to do. But So you're mm -hmm. saying, though, that this person that's got this chronic, you know, he's a distance runner, he's got this chronic Achilles problem. So my mate Richard had the same thing. You know, he just thought, okay, I'll just do, it feels wrong, but I'll just do really hard. And you're saying you don't have to do really hard, but anyway car phrases and you know you feel like it's going to make it worse because your achilles mm. hurts but it actually gets better yeah but mm. but it's nothing to do with firing it up because i had this rudimentary thing in my head that it, because it's so chronic you know we're talking about months years mm. that it's almost mm. become the new norm and then you've got to do something different to activate it is that is that just my well, that 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 could be a point but i mean you have another point is that there is probably some new formation of of tissue not scar-like or whatever we should say, but an excess amount of some matrix uh, proteins in there that fills up. And if you if you take an MRI or you take an ultrasound, you can see something is not normal there. And and the the surgical approach would of course be let's remove that. And some people mm -hmm. who go through operations get better because you remove something that is in there and you basically then create a new healing. And that can be good, but 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 there is not a good evidence that treatment of tendinopathy with surgery really is the drug of choice. But but you know, story-wise uh, or case study-wise, I can tell you that in some tendons where we took tendon biopsy, like you take muscle biopsies and put in a very small needle to take a little bit of tissue out, some of the people who had problems for a long time, they actually said that after the biopsy it was better. So maybe we mm -hmm. were down there sort of searing up that the whole thing can start all over again. And that that might be that in some cases, it's really, it's too, it's irreversible. It's, you have so much scar tissue down there. So even if you do very nice, heavy, you know, resistance training, you cannot get rid of it. But um, but that's that's still to be to be solved, why why this would uh, help. But, but uh, certainly you shouldn't just because you have pain in the tendon, if it's an overuse injury, not think that just surgery will help you. Yeah. So, so you would you would say then to people that if you've had a painful Achilles, chronically overuse, that you would suggest doing controlled um, calf calf type raises. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have yeah. to be really heavy, even fifty percent. Whatever. Yeah. You, but you just do a lot of them every day. Yeah. And then you do a lot of them. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Then and yeah. Many, exactly. How many would you tell people to do? You know, like twenty three well, times I mean, a day, the, or the, the, the old no, but the old traditional exercises found first by by Alfredson in Sweden and others, both for patella and for Achilles, they recommended that you did exercises maybe once a day or even twice a day, 
Uh, and we've compared that to, to just doing three times a week like you would normally do your strength training. And it looks like that three times a week is enough. And that would then be, depending on your load, of course, but something like three times 10 repetitions like you would do with your strength training regimen really? uh, would, would be would be enough in this situation. We're currently looking into whether even less <laughs> would do it because people always ask, how little can I get away with? Uh, and uh, uh, we will see how how it comes out. So 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 exercises that are not that far away from from the way you would do also with strength exercise. So if you go down to sixty mm. percent, you maybe want to go up to fifteen twenty repetitions or something Rips. like that. But 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 just um, just three times a week would be would be enough to get the effect over That's a twelve week period. Yeah. And that would be enough to get to, to get over like a chronic overuse injury. Yes, yes, there is a seventy percent oh. uh, effect, uh, both in the Achilles and the patella. The one thing that is still not solved, I have to say though, that is the challenge of uh, the Achilles uh, insertional problem. So if your problem in the Achilles tendon is down by the by the calcaneic bone or down by the heel. It's another story because there can be a lot of other things uh, taking place there. But unfortunately, those are not as frequent as the mid-portion problems in the Achilles okay. tendon. So, all right. So it sounds like you're saying because it used to be this thing about oh, you know, lift yourself up with both feet in a calf raise and then lower with one leg. So it was like focusing on the eccentric. Are you saying that's not really a big thing now? Just just up slowly, yeah. con concentric yeah. down slowly, eccentric. Yeah. You don't have to be hanging off a step or you know whatever. Sure, sure. But it, I mean, the point was that when, when it was found uh, way back, it was actually people on a waiting list to have surgery done. And the author also had a problem himself in the Achilles tendon. And then they started doing these eccentric contractions. And there was a period where you were not really uh, a proper uh, uh, person to treat these things if you couldn't say eccentric. And it was sort of a magic word. And, and the studies I've just referred to you with three times a week uh, doing strength training, and those are both for Achilles and for patella, um, they actually show that uh, it uh, probably is not the eccentric uh, exercise that is the magic thing. You can also get a long way with the, with the concentric. There are people out there who would favor isometric in the early phase when you have problems simply because it could then sort of squeeze out some of the things and, and the tendon gets to move a little bit more. Um, I think it's it's it probably also plays a role, but I wouldn't be too much fixated on mm. the type of contraction rather than just doing it. Just do it exactly. So we tend to complicate things. So I think just just stand there, hold onto the wall, lift yourself up slowly, lift yourself down, lower yourself, and do it ten times, three days a week, or something like that. And that you don't have to worry. Is it's concentric, eccentric? You're concentric on the way up, eccentric on the way down. You don't have to worry about sort of messing around. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, what about biomechanical? Again, it's Achilles. So what about biomechanics? So obviously, you know, it's, there's a lot to be, a lot of people when you go to the running shop saying you should buy this fancy, you know, shoe and expensive shoe and, and, and you know, have um, reduce your pronation, you know, all these sorts of bits yeah, and pieces. Yeah. Do you have people looked sure, at those sure. sort of things for injuries? Yeah, we haven't we haven't looked at it, but I mean the, the, the quick answer here is that that yes, there is a correlation between some uh, risk factors if you uh, have a certain way of, of landing or you have a certain way of your anatomy in the foot, you can show that there is a bigger risk of having it. But there are a lot of people who have some of these risk factors without having problems. So if we mm -hmm. find a person that has uh, 
even if the person pronates a lot or do something and there's not a real problem, then we would not fix it. Whereas the, no the shops mm. who sell you running shoes, they would tell you that you will you will have problems if you don't uh, get this or that or and 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 the real evidence behind uh, running analysis. I mean, taking a video and saying you should have these exactly these shoes is not very solid. So so where I would say it plays a role is if somebody has a problem. Then, of course, mm. if we then find that I there is something so. which is very strange, then we would say, let's see if we can fix some of the things. And I, I think especially the the problems with the Achilles uh, tendon insertion, there you really have to look into things like that and 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 how how things how, and there you can manipulate. But I think I think uh, I mean I probably the producers wouldn't like to hear it, but but I think there is an overselling of. Uh, a shoe equipment saying that for you it would be perfect if you did like that but of course if a person comes and say i always have these types of problems then mm. i would do it and I, I remember way back we did some some blinded analysis of of people who are either patients or elite runners and we had at least two or three of the people from the national running team were were identified as they should probably have done something done because they they have a very strange way of putting their foot in the ground. So so one should also be be a little bit cautious of of over treating. So yeah, oh, exactly. Well, you know, Michael Johnson's a classic. You know, he would lean back when he was running, but he he did well enough to win the four hundred eight hundred double, I think it was. So when you've said tendinopathies a few times, it it's uh it just makes me think of a, a like a disease process. Is it is what what is a definition of a tendinopathy? Well, the tendinopathy is the, that you have a pain in relation to the running, that you have a thickening of the tendon, and you have a palpatory soreness uh, when you compress it as a medical doctor, or if you can, okay. sometimes up in the shoulder you can. That's the that's the definition you can say, and then you can add things on and say you should be able to see something on ultrasound and MRI. Yeah, but that's basically mm -hmm. a definition. We don't take uh, regularly biopsies out just to to diagnose what's uh, what's wrong. Uh, yeah. Okay. And if someone comes along with a, with a thickened Achilles tendon and things, or if they've done, actually, I want to ask you the treatment again. So you said not, no sort of medicine or any supplement or anything does anything. The exercise is the best thing. It makes me think a few times it's come up with people where I've said, what about uh, the classic, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation, what about mm. anti-inflammatories? What about all mm. these things? Do you know? Do you have any yeah. thoughts on those? Mm. The 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 rest and ice and other things is is of course uh, has some role, uh, especially compression has a role in acute uh, injuries. Mm -hmm. You can say with a tendon rupture it doesn't matter so much because you have to find out how you want to fix it anyway. But mm -hmm. acute muscle injuries there, of course, you have it has a role, and it has been shown that there you probably have a a quicker way back uh, if you've done that but mostly with with acute muscle injuries it's much more important that you start your rehabilitation early if you just wait one week with rehabilitation it will take you three more weeks at the other end to come back so so that's a point but but with the tendinopathy a lot of these things will not uh, really help a lot we've looked at uh, the use of anti-inflammatory medication so despite the fact you can you can find inflammatory components in there there neither in the early phase nor in the chronic phase uh, people have been able to demonstrate that uh, all 
uh, anti-inflammatory medication in regular doses will have any effect whatsoever. Sorry, um, but uh, but there is no role there. You can say glucocorticoid injection as an isolated treatment. One should be very cautious uh, because it doesn't really help in itself. It looks like that there are some tendons where a combination of uh, strength training and uh, uh, not into the tendon, but around the tendon with glucocorticoids maybe have an effect. Um, and then there are also some other treatments, uh, um, platelet-rich plasma, which is used where you centrifuge your own blood and you take the rich uh, plasma there with a lot of thrombocytes, has been shown to have absolutely no effect. It's used, it's given a lot, but it's not having any effect. High-volume injection, where you inject saline around the tendon, can, can have some effect, if it's, especially if it's around the tendon, there are, are problems. And then people have tried with other drugs where they really have not shown very much effect. The shockwave treatment has been used. And shockwave treatment is very good if you have a calcification in the tendon. But if you just have mm -hmm. a regular tendinopathy with swelling tendon, you will have no effect. But, um, of course, if you have a shockwave treatment equipment, you are more prone maybe to use it. So um, Okay. So it's either going to have no effect or, or maybe some effect, but probably no effect. But if you've got it, you might it, as well use it. it. It's been uh, the shockwave has been shown in the original studies to be very efficient if you have a calcification, and that oh, was sorry, from the shoulder. And if you have a calcification where you really can see that there is a, a calcification area, then it really has the effect that shockwave has and can destroy that. And then there are some laser treatment, et cetera, others, but it's very, very minor effect that has been shown there. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned collagen. So a lot of people, you know, people always are interested in supplements. You see all over the place, supplements, supplements. And generally, in, in, if you watch my podcast, I'm generally saying don't take supplements. You generally don't need them. So I know some people go, oh, uh, tendons made of collagen. Therefore, I should eat collagen. What do you? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's it's the same. It's the same discussion as with muscle, where creatine supplementation or or with the cartilage, with glucosamine supplementation, because the substances are there, should we then give them? And uh, there is very, very sparse evidence. Uh, there are very few observations. I know it's advanced at some stages, and we're we're actually currently in a study also on elite athletes to look at whether it has an effect. But but of course, collagen is has to be broken down into the amino acids and then build up again. So exactly. So, you know, you really should have a a lack of, of amino acids in order for me to think it would really be be helpful. But it, it sounds very appealing, and I, I don't think it. And collagen, I mean, it's an important uh, molecule. It's the most frequent molecule in the human body. So normally we think when we are very muscle-oriented, we say, okay, myosin, actin, myosin are very important. And if you're blood interested, you would say hemoglobin, and they are. But uh, collagen is like, it's almost 2% of the, of the entire proteins. So um, because it's in the skin, it's every, it's the glue that holds it together. But I, I don't see at this point, it's not a thing we, we would recommend. Um, it's not harmful. Say the, co it's the collagen may get broken down to its amino acids, and then it, you need to have DNA to RNA to, to messenger RNA to actually say, make more collagen to then yeah. put it together. So it doesn't make sense in that regard. I mean, if, I, if, I, said, if, I, if, I, if I eat a tendon... Uh, and it's not so that the fibrils in there will will sub, will will replace the other uh, uh, fibril I have. Exactly, and and, and uh, people can listen to Stu Phillips' podcast where he says generally most people get enough protein in their diet anyway. Um, now, what is the best way to prevent tendon injury? So I know you said 
So we're talking about doing calf raises and things or the equivalent for other tendons um, if you're injured. But is it the same as yeah. doing these, no. you know, 10 reps, three days a week, whatever, mm -hmm. will that help prevent? No, not not really. I mean, it's 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 very important to um, to be in the shape that your sport will require. And the, the most uh, frequent cause for having overuse injury of the tendon is, and we know that from people who are very systematic in their approach and write down what they've trained. And the most, the most uh, risk, the, the highest risk factor to get it is a, a an increase, a dramatic increase in your training amount in the last two to three months before. And and I mean the the, the mystery is so that 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 if you go out and train and you start running, and we have a lot of people who weekend warriors, there are a lot of people who want to run a marathon and haven't tried it before, and they then go out and run a lot, and the first two three weeks. <laughs> As I talked about before, you might get a little bit of swelling in the tendon, but not enough to have pain. So people think it goes well, and they advance with mm -hmm. several miles a week. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden they say, why did it happen this week? I just trained the same as I did before. But that's mm -hmm. we can often see with a, with a delay of three, four weeks, and then go back okay. and see, okay, something happened there. It could also be that you've been let's say you've been running on soft surface and all of a sudden it, it's getting mm. colder. So you run on, on, on concrete. Uh, and then people say, Hey, I, I did run exactly the same as before. So, so changes, dramatic changes over time does make a difference. And then of course, all of us have an upper limit, even if we're well-trained where we cannot tolerate more. And unfortunately, I mean, we don't know exactly if there, if there is any genetics behind it. There are some people suggesting that there are some people who can resist more. But but if I have three recreational runners and they train a lot, then one of them will come with an overuse injury and he will say it's not fair because the two other ones didn't have it and they run exactly mm -hmm. the same. So so we all have a higher level and we know that from, from elite schools, let's say on, on volleyball, in Norway, where people are together and doing nothing but volleyball, and some of those who actually are performing the best, who can jump the highest, who are in the best shape, they're actually very prone to get it, simply because they train too much. And what is too much? Hmm, unfortunately, we don't exactly know where it is, but but there's no doubt that that respecting, and that's what I say to runners, if you feel that you've been running a lot and your Achillesen if you squeeze it and feel that it's more it's more sore than it normally is, then you're on a bad track, uh, and then you should probably reduce it a little bit. Or if you get more sore in the morning when you start the first step, you feel like there is something, then you're also on the wrong track. And then you shouldn't go to zero, but you should reduce it a little bit. And in explosive sports, we can very often have people train exactly the same amount of hours, but they replace a lot of the jumping with this heavy, slow resistance training instead. So so a lot okay. of the explosive things, it's probably not the jump that is dangerous, it's the landing of it, uh, which mm. is uh, which is very hard to pretend. So, mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so you'd yeah. suggest if people are in that position, they should they should not necessarily um necessarily reduce what they're doing or, or just replace some of it with that that more controlled yeah, sort of that's, calf raises. That's, uh, I mean that that would be a suggestion and, and that's why that's why the, the clinical experience is that, that triathletes are in a very good situation because if they get a little bit overused by running, for instance, they will just swim exactly. a little bit more. Whereas if, if exactly. you tell a, a, a very fanatic runner 
that he should bicycle or row a little more, and he would look at you and say, you must be crazy because it's only running what is fun. So, so you know, we all have our preferences, but, but, but shifting, a lot of the people who can train a lot but don't have injuries is people who do very big variation in what they do. Uh, if, if you do the same, same, same thing all the time, and, and I know from the track and field people, a lot of the elite athletes in track and field have problems when they train too much on the track with with spikes, uh, and so 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 there is something where we strengthen the tissue and train or build up, and then there is something where we test whether it can really resist it. And uh, if we if we test constantly, it's like people say you can't just run a marathon every week. I mean, there are a few people who can, but but most people will at some point run into a problem, even if their glycogen is built up again, even if they should be ready. Because there's something that is not that doesn't tolerate that you do it that right. often. So it all comes comes to the load and how often and how if you're building it up. So things like warming up, stretching. So I had uh, Christian Thorborg. I think you collaborate with him. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He was saying there isn't really good evidence for stretching. Things like that for pre, uh, for for prevention. Yeah. No stretching, and and it goes the same here. Stretching is a very good thing to do if you need to be flexible in your sport. So a hurdle runner should do flexibility training because you do get more flexible. You do get a higher range of motion, but we cannot show that it really decreases the amount or the risk for for injury. But of course, if you have to perform in a certain way and you have to be flexible, you should do that. If you do strength training, we know that you get less flexible and that means if you want to do strength training and maintain your flexibility, you should also do that on the top. So that's not really a big issue in selling people they should do strength training there. But for some people, it feels right. And there are a lot of experiments where they've put uh, uh, warming up on people who normally didn't warm up and it didn't influence their 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 amount of, of injuries. On the contrary, mm-hmm. but people who normally do warm up, if you took the warm up away from them, they reported that they felt they had more injuries. So, so oh, it might be also sort of a, a what you normally do, and and it, it, it's sort of a, a ritual you have to go through. But but then of course the warm up instead of stretching, but the warm up has of course a, 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 we know that for performance it has an obvious role that that your mm-hmm. muscle, the temperature, the contractility will go up. So so if you do a hundred meter run, I, I would suggest to warm up. But the injury you get is not necessarily from whether you warmed up or not. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I remember there was a distance runner, Robert DiCostello. He was a great distance runner for Australia in the 80s. And uh, I remember he was saying he couldn't even get within uh, like two feet, so 60 centimeters of touching his toes. But he didn't care. He didn't do, you know, he said, what do I care? I'm a distance runner. I'm just moving through this small range. So as you say, if if you don't actually need that range, then you don't need to try and get that range, right? Um, but there is, right, so, but there, sorry, is yeah. Yeah, there, there is something about the, the connective tissue and the explosive things, which is very puzzling, because now you mention a famous runner. We have a, a, a famous uh, Danish uh, track and field person who back in the 70s uh, won the uh, European championship in, in high jump. And he was a very good decathlon, very explosive. He became a doctor later on. And, and he told that because he was giving an interview, <clears throat> he said that even at the age of 50, he could still, he almost had the VO2 max, uh, his endurance capacity as before. 
He could almost lift the same weights as he could before, but if he went on the track field with spikes on and did a 100-meter uh, fast run, he would get an injury. So so the explosive yeah. things uh, he had to mm -hmm. avoid. This has been great. I know you need, need to finish up soon. So how about we go to some of these Twitter questions. So Fabian, can a fully torn, this sounds a bit personal, I think, for Fabian, can a fully torn proximal hamstring tendon heal back to the bone? Uh, if so, what is the cellular mechanism? If so, is there anything a patient can do to yeah. make the formation of a neotorn tendon more possible? Yeah. If you if you have a muscle injury in the back and it's uh, at the myotendinous junction, it will it will not require surgery. But the 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 example that he mentions, a totally torn off tendon, will actually require uh, a surgery. And I don't think that should be left on. Uh, unoperated because it will not by itself grow back uh, at that stage. Okay. Okay. So it doesn't just sort of attach to the, I don't know, other bits and pieces. It just, it ends up just it, blowing it the does, wind. But it's, it, it does attach in some way, but it's not going to be as it was before. And these, the ability to do sports will be limited. Okay. Just the thing about age. So with age, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the person you mentioned getting injured more often and whatever. What actually happens to the with age? Did you, I don't know if you said it earlier. Does there less turnover with? Um... It doesn't change very much, uh, and actually, a lot of the changes with getting a little bit stiffer tendons with age is uh, more related to not doing exercise than anything yeah. else. If we take people who are very good shape when they're older, there's not a big difference on the on the tendon. Whether it really is reduced in its uh, tolerance before it breaks. We really haven't been able to measure that much in humans, but uh, maybe there is a little bit of reduction. But on the other hand, the muscles also get uh, uh, get less strong. So, so it should go along with each other. And okay. and old people are not very prone to get uh, 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 tendon ruptures, for instance. And then you can say it's because they don't do exercise. But but even those who do very much exercise, uh, uh, master athletes, they're prone a little bit to get the muscle injuries. Uh, but because they still do a lot of explosives, but it's not very prominent that they get the tendon ruptures. So, okay, so they don't get changes like you know you tend to lose elastin and things like that. So I guess, but you're saying the tendon's mainly collagen. There isn't much elastic in there, is that right? Because so, no, there is a little bit in in there, and it looks like that you your your tendon can can adapt a little bit better when you do when you use it, and if you don't use it, uh, it mm. tends uh, to to become a little bit stiffer, and that happens with age rather than because you don't do so much exercise, like, like, the, like the loss of muscle. Yeah. Okay. So I had Windarabe on here, and he was saying he's got some evidence that people with more muscle type two muscle fibers get more injuries. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mm -hmm. make sense? I guess. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's just putting more strain or faster strain or yeah. something on the tendon. It's probably the. I mean, the fast, the fast movements there. Because the tendon has this viscoelastic properties, so the faster you you uh, you make a movement in the muscle, the less uh, elasticity you will see in the tendon. Because it, it it when it goes very fast, if it's viscoelastic, it will take some time before it elongates. So yeah. so the more fast fibers you have, the more explosive you are, but maybe also yeah. the higher risk. And this is a this is a very interesting sort of uh, dilemma that actually the things that make you perform very well is actually also some of the things that make you go in a higher risk for, for injuries. Um, mm -hmm. like, a, mm -hmm. like a karate kicker, if you're very good 
in relaxing your backside of the of the there your hamstrings, for instance, so you can kick better. So you don't get a co-contraction of the antagonist muscle. You're also in a higher risk of getting injuries in the knee. So so the more you train just to let the muscles activate for performance, the more you also activate maybe the or you 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 inhibit some of the muscles that are actually protective for the knee mm -hmm. for other things. So I think there is a paradigm in, in between this uh, or a dilemma between performance and the risk of getting injury. Mm. Okay, Mark here has a question. To what, to what degree can the structural changes and tendons seen in people with diabetes be reversed with resistance training and can the risk of tendinopathies be normalized? Is that a thing? I don't know. I didn't, wasn't aware of that. Yeah, they, they have a higher risk for, for, for tendon rupture. And, and there, are, there are a lot of things that are not solved with the risk for tendon rupture and for tendinopathy. There are also certain drugs, anti-inflammatory uh, antibiotics, the fluoroquinolones, where it's reported that people get, uh, get tendinopathy when they get those. And there are a lot of things that we still don't have an answer on yet why uh, this is so. But, but diabetic people have a greater tendency to get uh, tendon problems, yes, and uh, we think that they have the same effect of doing strength training, um, but uh, we are not pretty sure there. I see my battery okay. is almost running out on my phone, so uh, yeah. Okay, all right. So we're going to finish up soon. If you don't mind, where do you see the next big scientific or clinical breakthrough in tendon research, clinical practice, and in what populations, athletes, metabolic or rheumatological? diseases yeah i think i think the elite athletes they will just train more when we tell them what how to do it optimally i think mm -hmm. the biggest advance will be in the recreational um, uh, athletes or, or people who do recreational sports because we will be more able to tell them what signals and what findings they should be worried about and where they by just small adjustments in the training can actually continue doing most of what that that's that's what i what i strongly believe we can uh, we can come to and i think we're getting there very soon okay so also mark again since there are adipokines so these are these are proteins released from adipose tissues so fat myokines are released from muscle hepatokines from so from liver just so the audience etc do tendons also secrete molecules mm -hmm. to, during exercise tendokines he's calling them the quick question is we don't know. There are much less cells in the tendon than there are in muscle. And, and it's also difficult to say whether a substance in the tendon should go abroad or, or to some other tissue to do something. But locally, mm -hmm. you can say that what we do know is that there are in, in tendon cells, and that's published just last year in this circadian control thing, mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. the, the individual cells in the tendon release extracellular vesicles like they do in 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 other tissues mm -hmm. and those vesicles are signaling between the cells in the tendon and they are under circadian control so it's actually so that there is a a proof that there is a lot under circadian control and that's probably very important because that tells the rest of the tendon what is actually going on we also know that when we measured with microdialysis some years ago, that for instance, IL-6, interleukin-6, that is known to be released from muscle, is released to an enormous amount uh, in from the tendon. But what that yeah. means, because it's a, it's, it's, it's a high amount, but in the total 
in the total sum, it's very little okay. because the tendons are very small. But if that has a, a role locally, we don't know. But it's a very tempting idea. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah. Hmm. So with circadian changes, so if you got messed up by jet lag or whatever, it could potentially be affecting your tendon or it's a bit that, early to say that. That is, that is exactly what we're looking uh, more into now. And maybe also the question, is it better to train in the morning than in the evening? And what, you know, things like that. But it's really difficult to make observation because you would think that people who have night shifts would that have more injuries. But then again, they adjust their training uh, when you do that. But But that's a very good point. That's interesting because I know I heard a, a talk about by a sleep researcher, uh, Matthew Walker, I think it is. He was talking about if you don't sleep enough, then you don't get am amyloid, you know, that's associated with Alzheimer's, uh, removed. Because while you're sleeping, it's removed, so it can build up. So it might be the same with tendon, you know, where you're getting that turnover. If you're not sleeping enough, or your circadian rhythm's messed up. And and the other the other point is that we know that growth hormone and IGF-1 are very strong stimulators of the connective tissue. And I mean, even if you have an activation of those with exercise, the strongest activator of growth hormone is sleep. So, so that's really where you, where you probably have a lot of the gen regenerative things. Uh, uh, the growth hormone is by far the highest during night, and that's a very strong stimulator of formation of collagen. So that could be another issue. Yeah. How about if we just before your phone dies, can we just give a quick um, takeaway messages if possible? So, what do you want people to take away from this before, unless your phone dies? Sure. I think I think that the important uh, point here is that uh, sports injuries is an, an, an overuse uh, of the tissue and that the uh, connective tissue that we normally just feel as uh, very inert as passive structures is more dynamic than we think. That uh, constant exercise is really good for you. It's about finding the balance between doing the exercise that is really stimulating the tissue and not misusing it. And that balance we try to be better and better in trying to give good advices of how much is is good and how much is uh, is too much right right thank you very much so as usual exercise is good for us and you know even if you're having problems and it's, you know if it's your tendon for example it's still good to keep moving it and um maybe just don't overdo it so you know everything in moderation <laughs> okay well thank you very much michael thanks for coming good on. thanks man okay thanks. Bye-bye. See you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.